0: The insecticide only functions by treating the symptom by killing the flea beetle, whereas nutritional seed treatment changes the plant's biochemistry so it's no longer a viable food source for the flea beetle. So you're addressing the root cause of the problem and the reason the flea beetles are there in the first place rather than simply treating the symptom. Flea beetles are not a problem. They're a symptom of an underlying problem, as is true of all diseases and insects.
1: Welcome to the Growing the Future podcast, where our future is always bigger than our past. Being in the business of growing food for the world is a massive challenge, not for the faint of heart. Join us, the Aberhart Brothers, as we talk to progressive folks who like to innovate, collaborate, transform the agricultural landscape. If you want to cultivate a growth mindset in agriculture, Then let's get growing our future together. Hey now, it is Dan Eberhardt here, today's host of the Growing the Future podcast, and we are back with season four, episode six, a very special episode today. But before I get to that, I just want to let you know, you can sign up for our newsletter at growingthefuturepodcast.ca. You can get new emails about our episodes whenever they come out. You can find out all about our past episodes there and Make sure to give us a follow on the social media platforms out there. They'll keep you informed. And our YouTube channel, you can watch the videos of our conversations here on the show. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Agvisor Pro. Get the confidence that comes with a second opinion by trying Agvisor Pro today. Peace of mind is waiting for you. Also, Terry and I are waiting for you on Agvisor Pro. Download the free app today. You can also find the Eberhardt family of companies online. Starting with AberhartFarms.com. You can learn more about our farming operation in Saskatchewan. SureGrowth.ca to learn more about the Precision Agronomy consulting services offered there. ConvergenceGrowth.com, one of the newest members of the family. They accelerate solutions across food, health, and agriculture. And of course, last but not least, AberhartEggSolutions.ca, where we deliver one-of-a-kind fertility solutions of the future to your farm. My next guest almost needs no introduction in the regenerative ag circles here. He is an author, host of Regenerative Agriculture Podcast, and founder of a very interesting company that truly is advancing eco-agriculture. He has a really interesting story, starting at a young age, working on the family farm using horses instead of tractors and taking a problem on the farm turning it into a big opportunity for himself. He's he's a young guy, but he's uh, moving and shaking folks. Today, he's known as a top expert in the field of biological and regenerative farming, who is building a comprehensive systems approach to plant nutrition that we're going to hear about today. And you can find him on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and his website is com. All the links will be in the description. So make sure to give him a follow. Personally. This gentleman's podcast is the agricultural agricultural podcast that I most I most tend towards listening to. I really enjoy it. So today, I'm so excited to be quizzing him about how he got started in the regenerative egg business. So there's an interesting background there. His perspective on modern farming practices and also the modern food system we're all ingesting as we go, and also talk about how he's building a company culture that's helping to scale his philosophy out into the agriculture community. Welcome to the show, the one and only. John Kempf.
0: Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me on here. That's quite the introduction to live up to. My goodness. <laughs> is it all downhill? from here?
1: <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Well, it is absolutely amazing to hear your voice, my friend, because I've listened to your show so much and it's like I know you before we've ever got a chance to meet. So thank you for all the work that you've done on the show. And it's always just sort of give me like, courage and confidence about, hey, with regenerative ag, there's something there that we can sink our teeth into and we can start to execute on because people like you are are bringing it to the market in a fashion that I think everybody can relate. And we want to delve into your philosophy, but first of all, you're a young guy, you're 20. How old are you now? 20. I'm early 30s. Oh, okay. So I was reading your bio. I was like, you're 26. <laughs> Still really young know. by by entrepreneurial standards for the wisdom that you carry. So how did you get started in this journey with the farming systems that you now espouse.
0: I grew up on a family fruit and vegetable farm in the snow belt of Northeast Ohio, east of Cleveland, where we have summers with really high rainfall, really high humidity, and uh, limited sunlight. We have, we're have the second cloudiest spot in continental North America, second only to Seattle. And so, as you can imagine, the combination of a lack of sunlight plus the high humidity creates a very disease-prone environment. where ranging between 50 and 55 inches of rainfall a year so our problem is usually more related to excess water rather than not enough and so we have lots of fungal disease pressure and bacterial disease pressure and so forth and growing up on the fruit and vegetable farm when I graduated from school being within the Amish community we only go through the eighth grade so I graduated at age 14 and started working on the farm and I was given the responsibility of doing all of the irrigation and the spraying, including spraying both uh, fertilizers and pesticides. And on a vegetable operation, we're usually at a five to seven day interval in this type of environment. Very intense fungicide applications and insecticide applications. After a decade of that continued work, we were coming to the end of the rope and smacking our head against the brick wall in the early 2000s, 2002, 3, and 4 we had a three-year consecutive period that we lost greater than 70% of our crops to a number of different diseases that we were not successful in managing or in controlling with the fungicide applications. And the crop that really caught my attention was in 2004 when we rented a field from a neighboring farm that had been a former dairy farm rotation, had not had the pesticide exposures that our soils had had. When we started planting these two fields switched the direction of the rows by 90 degrees and started planting across the former field border. And that first year, that 2004 season, the third year that we had these severe crop losses, in this split field, the old soil this field was planted into cantaloupe. And the old soil that we'd been farming with the intense pesticide applications every year for the prior decade, we had 80% leaf infection of powdery mildew at harvest when harvest first started. And on the new soil, there was no powdery mildew, not 5% or 10%, but zero. And that really caught my attention. I wanted to learn what are the differences between those two plants and what allows one plant to be resistant to powdery mildew when the next plant two feet away is susceptible. And what I learned from asking that question, and I was very fortunate to quickly become connected with many leading plant pathologists and agronomists, both within academia and independent consultants from all over the country, well, from around the world for that matter. And I learned that plants have an immune system much the same way that we do. We all have our own individual immune system, but they don't all function equally well. Some people become ill with the first cold or flu bug that comes along, and other people practically never become ill. And the only difference between those two is how well their immune system has been supported from since before they were born. And the same concept holds true of plants. The fundamentals of supporting immune function in both plants and humans and livestock is uh, support with mineral nutrition and the microbiome. It really comes down to those two foundational pieces, is supporting the microbiome and supporting nutrition. So we made a rapid change on the farm, we started managing nutrition very differently. And I think Here's, here's the point that really stands out for me when looking at agriculture today is the knowledge and the information about how to manage nutrition for immune function has been around for decades, but it's never been transferred into agronomic practice. To this day, our agronomic focus is we have this very singular perspective on looking exclusively at yield we can identify, we think, exactly the quantity of nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium or calcium required to produce a bushel of corn or a bushel of grain. But we never ask the question, what do the ratio of these nutrients need to be to produce plant immune responses? And so our approach over the last decade and a half since then has been to seek to balance plant nutrition and microbial function so that we do have these really high yields and that we also have plant health as well. What's been really interesting is that when you produce really healthy plants that are resistant to diseases and insects, you can't stop yields from happening. You can't stop yields from increasing. They will invariably go up when you produce really healthy plants.
1: Why is it that we've gotten so far off track or this knowledge of the soil has been absent? If you talk to most modern farmers, are they familiar with the biome? Are they looking at the biome? Where, 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 how do we get away from that sort of holistic view of, of farming, do you think?
0: I believe that the answer to that question lies in the saying, you achieve what you incentivize. And when you look at the macroeconomic perspective, we have incentivized patentable solutions. So if you can patent something, if you can identify a specific insecticide or fungicide with a a mode of action or a mechanism that you can describe, then you can successfully patent that. But you can't put together a microbial inoculant that has twenty different species and patent that combination. And therefore there has been no economic incentive for agribusiness to develop that.
1: It appears to me one of the barriers here too is the complexity of these of these systems. Whereas you can apply a chemical solution that immediately addresses any symptoms you're trying to get to the heart of the problem but the sophisticated methods that are conversations you know evaluations that are required they really, the, the component is people right that's partially true we're talking about implementing
0: a different system of plant production that is based on a different mindset a different approach different principles than point-and-shoot solutions. That's certainly true. We're seeking to identify and prevent the root causes of problems. But yet, this is not something that's so particularly difficult. It's not really that different from many of the things that farmers do already. We are already trained to be systems thinkers. We have to be systems thinkers or we don't survive in business very long. And it's certainly not beyond the skill set and the capability of most farmers. I mean, I would say this is something that is, in, in my estimation, it's not difficult at all because as growers, we already have to manage such diverse complexity of weather and planting and insect management, disease management. It's simply a, a shift of framework that rather than waiting to identify a problem and treat it once we have a problem, we seek to prevent it proactively. So we have to manage for the future that might arrive next year or five years in the future or next month rather than waiting until we actually have a problem. There's a shift in the time frame in which we're seeking to manage. Are we managing for the future? Are we managing for the past, for what has already happened? Most farmers today are managing for the past. They wait until a problem, and I'm speaking here specifically in the context of diseases and insects, they wait until a problem has expressed itself or is beginning to express itself before an application is made. So there's a slight shift in thinking there, but it's not insurmountable. This This is not really that significant a shift. I, I, in my opinion, the emphasis on the shift in thinking required is often greater than what the actual shift is. Uh, I think this is something that farmers are, we're, we're all already doing it to some degree. It's not that difficult.
1: Right. So you're talking about once you've shifted the mindset, the actual implementation is easier than you would imagine from the other side.
0: Well, the implementation is easier than you would imagine, but also I would say the shift in mindset is not as significant as most people actually portray it to be. The the difference fundamentally, the way that I would describe it, and there's a lot that we could unpack here, but fundamentally what it comes down to is a difference of treating symptoms versus trying to identify and prevent root causes. So we can say, well, we're concerned that we're going to have flea beetles on canola, When they emerge, so therefore, we need to treat the seed with a neonicotinoid. That's a preventative action where you're trying to prevent something in the future. Or you could say, we're concerned about flea beetles being problems on canola once they emerge, so we're going to treat the seed with an application of boron and molybdenum and sulfur, and that's going to prevent the problem. The difference is that the insecticide only functions by treating the symptom by killing the flea beetle, whereas nutritional seed treatment changes the plant's biochemistry so it's no longer a viable food source for the flea beetles. So you're addressing the root cause of the problem and the reason the flea beetles are there in the first place, rather than simply treating the symptom. Flea beetles are not a problem, they're a symptom of an underlying problem, as is true of all diseases and insects.
1: When you embarked on this journey, tell us more about some of the people that had a big influence on your mindset in terms of mentors.
0: Oh, there's quite a list that uh, deserve credit in the early days. And the list just just continues to grow as time goes by. Early on, it was Dr. Michael McNeil and Jerry Hatfield, Don Huber, Gary Zimmer, Jerry Bernetti, Bruce Tainio, who's now passed away. And uh, I guess Jerry Bernetti has also passed away. So there was an amazing group of people early on, but that that still continues. There's many people today who I still uh, consider to be my mentors. You gave a lot of compliments to my podcast. Thank you for that. But the podcast originally started... Because of the the personal experience that I had with Jerry Bernetti and Bruce Tainio, who were were two people who, quite simply put, were geniuses. And unfortunately, they both passed away and took most of their knowledge with with them to the grave. And I didn't want to see that happening, continue to happen. So one of the reasons for the podcast was to interview these wise elders, these people who had been around before, if you go back... Prior to the 50s and even to some degree the 60s and 70s, there are lots of people still living today who have 50 or 60 years of experience in agriculture and plant pathology and they remember what it was like before we had all the disease expression, before we had all the pesticides today and how they managed diseases back then. And So I wanted to interview these people both to share their knowledge with a broader audience but also to make other people aware of who these people were and get them to speak at more conferences and raise their profile so that more people would be aware. And it's been very humbling and very rewarding for the accolades and the, the reviews that the podcast has received. It's, I, just, I just have fun with it. It's, just, uh, it's a fun project.
1: My curiosity is around when learning from these elders full of wisdom, as you put it, Are you able to take their wisdom and and put it together in something new, or is there really nothing new under the sun?
0: Kind of both are true. There is nothing new under the sun in terms of science and technology. Well, new understandings are emerging, but they are just revisions of old understanding, I would say. But what is new is that we have a new context today. We have an evolving context in our agricultural soils. If you go back... In the 60s and 70s, there were, the agronomists of the day were big fans of putting on limestone and rock phosphate and chicken manure. There was one agronomist in the regenerative ag, agri- or wasn't called regenerative ag, but in the eco-ag field at that time, who really made a reputation of turning farms around very quickly by putting on a ton of limestone, a ton of rock phosphate, and two tons of poultry manure. And that was a strategy that was implemented or a tactic that was implemented on tens of millions of acres with amazing successes. Well, I've observed many farms who have tried to repeat that in the last 15 years with limited or no success or even a negative effect. So what has changed? What is different? And I think what is different is that I don't know this definitively, of course, because we don't have the historical measurements, but my perception is that many of our agricultural soils have an accumulated pesticide load and suppressed microbial activity To the point where they no longer respond like they did forty years ago, and there are parallels in medicine. I have many friends in human uh, medicine who say that human systems are much more compromised than they were, and it requires much more rigorous and intensive treatment to produce the same responses as it did even ten or fifteen years ago. So I think our ecosystems are becoming more challenged. It requires more effort and more focus to produce an outcome than what may have been true historically. But my personal experience only extends for 15 years. The piece that I found interesting is that there is an extraordinary amount of knowledge and information available today that never gets transferred to farmers. When I started down this pathway early on, I started having questions or having conversations or trying to have conversations with fellow agronomists and fellow farmers about plant immunity... Uh, At first, I received some very interesting pushback that, oh, plants don't have immune systems. You can't talk about plant immunity. There's (laughs) there's no support for plants having immune systems. And while the farmers in the field had that perception, at that same moment, there were entire scientific journals dedicated to publishing articles on plant immunity. There were dozens, hundreds of books published and tens of thousands of peer-reviewed papers on plant immune systems but the farmers never heard about it. The agronomists, for the most part, never heard about it. And that, I think, the place that we are in today, I mean, yes, we are constantly evolving our knowledge. We need to continue to do that. We need to be constantly learning. At the same time, I'm of the persuasion that we actually don't need any new information to implement these regenerative agriculture systems on a large scale. We already have I'm speaking of the collective we, we collectively as a human species, we already have all the knowledge and information that we need to be successful globally on implementing this. We just need to implement what we already
1: know. That is fantastic to hear. Tell us about this company that you have built to get this philosophy out to farmers in a practical sense. Well, we started after we made transitions
0: on the farm that I grew up on. My dad was also a regional distributor for inputs and other farmers were coming to visit our farm all the time and were observing the changes that we made. So in by 2006, we had gone completely pesticide-free on the farm. We were not organically certified and still are not, but our market didn't incentivize that. So we were completely pesticide-free and not only were we pesticide-free, but we had higher yielding crops and we had healthier crops than we had had before. And it was very noticeable. So Local growers started asking questions, and um, I started working with other people on their farms and making agronomy recommendations for them, to the point where in 2006, my dad told me that I can can either help people on their farms or continue to work on ours, but I shouldn't try to do both. (laughs) uh, Wise man. (laughs) Led to the founding of Advancing Eco-Agriculture, and initially, we were a consulting company only. We did consulting work from 2006 until was actually in 2012 when we first started releasing products for our growers as well. But that shift started happening earlier. By the end of the 2008 growing season, I was becoming very frustrated with the lack of uh, results that we were seeing because very frequently the, the data would come back uh, indicating that for a specific problem, we needed to apply a few grams of molybdenum per acre or a little bit of cobalt or whatever trace mineral might be needed. and. We would make these recommendations to growers and entirely too frequently, the recommendations would not be applied simply because growers had a hard time accessing the product. It was a different day and a different time than 15 years ago or 12 years, 10 years ago from what it is now. It was very difficult to access those types of products. So in 2009, we started a lot of field testing and R&D product development. In 2012, we first started releasing products into the marketplace. And um, flash forward to today, we have a team of about 60 people working on several million acres of about 60 different crops. And I've been known to make some pretty bold statements. One of them in particular has been that it is possible to produce crops that are 100% resistant to diseases and insects. And that's a pretty big mouthful. It's one I try to be very cautious and, and very accurate in the things that I say when I'm talking about these regenerative ag systems. And so I was very cautious about putting that statement out there, but this is it's not a hypothesis anymore. It's not a theory. This is something that we have done in practice on a significant scale, not once, not twice, but thousands of times. And with that level of experience comes a confidence and a commitment that, yeah, this is real. This is possible. This can be done on scale. So, that's, that's where we are today. And I think one of the reasons we have, there's a few reasons we've grown as rapidly as we have as, a, as an enterprise. And fundamental to our success has been that we believe growers should never guess about anything that it's possible to measure. So if it's possible to measure whether your crop has enough molybdenum or cobalt or boron, then don't guess about it. Actually measure. And so we, we use lots of data, soil analysis data and sap, plant sap analysis data to base our recommendations on. And the second fundamental is that we believe, again, based on you achieve what you incentivize, I'm personally, I'm very passionate about having these regenerative models become the status quo globally around the world in the next 20 years. And I believe that's a very realistic and very achievable goal. And so if you want to achieve that type of adoption, it means there needs to be an incentive for that adoption. You achieve what you incentivize. Growers need to observe economic incentives. And so, and in the short term, not in the long term, there's lots of narratives out there. People who are promoting regenerative agriculture say that, oh, you should discontinue your fertilizer or reduce your fertilizer application. start growing cover crops, doing all these things, and you're going to improve soil health. And four or five years down the road, you're going to start uh, improving yields and reducing inputs. Well, there's only one problem with that, which is most farmers don't have the cash flow to sustain that or, or the capitalization to sustain that transition over a four to five-year period. So we have really emphasized that we want to understand the economics and the economic impact of every recommendation that we make on a given crop type and context and so forth, what are the applications that consistently deliver the greatest economic returns? And we track that constantly. And so we can say that based on all the experience across all crop types, the the application that produces the greatest ROI for farmers the most consistently is... A seed treatment microbial inoculant. We know that. And the second, and again, this is speaking broadly across a broad range of crop types the second application that produces the greatest economic crop response is a foliar application of nutrients that is properly designed. We have the data for that. And so our emphasis as an organization has been that as much as possible, every recommendation that we make needs to deliver. A significant economic crop response this year, this growing season, not two years or five years in the future. needs to happen right now. And that quite simply is, I think, why we've been able to have the impact that that we've had is because we've been able to turn
1: soils and crops around very quickly in a single growing season. I love that you're speaking to that. I think that's a huge objection because absolutely, that's a classic perception that if you're going to go regenerative, (laughs) you're going to have a half a decade of pain. You just got to hunker yeah. down and keep re- reading that Gabe Brown book over and over. You'll get there one day. I love that you're doing that. So when the majority of your customers come to you, what what is their primary impetus? Is it is it profitability? Have they hit a wall with the conventional practices? Are they, 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 the, the innovators, they want to try something new? What do you find with most of your customers?
0: There's a range, of course. Uh, it's kind of across the board. But I would say, and it also depends a little bit on crop type, in the in the fruit and vegetable world. We've really developed a reputation for producing not just significant yield responses, but significant quality improvements. Apples and potatoes and some of these storage fruit are often stored for six months or longer before they actually go to the grocery store shelf. And in the case of apples, they will actually measure The nutrient content of the apples as they go into storage and that determines which apples get pulled out of storage first because they know that the apples that have the highest calcium content the highest nutrient content are going to be shelf stable in the cooler for the longest period of time and also in these fruit and vegetable production world the well in, in any crop for that matter we when we first begin working with a new crop we try to deeply understand what precisely defines marketable yield so, if you take an apple crop, a tree might hold an apple tree might hold a thousand fruit in the beginning of the season, and then in June, some of them will drop off. You might reduce your load down to 900 fruit per tree, and then as you get close to maturity, you might drop, depending on the variety and context, you might drop as many as 30 percent of the fruit on the tree. Now you're down to 700 fruit on the tree, or maybe 600, and then you go run through the packing and processing line, you cut out another 20 or 30%. And you put them into storage, they come back out of storage again, now you cut down another 20 to 30%. As crazy as it sounds, the apples that actually make it to the grocery store shelf might represent as little as 25 to 30% of the fruit that were actually on that tree. We have growers that are in the high 90 percentile. That just triples their revenue per acre. It's a ridiculous increase. That's an extreme example, but, There are parallels as well to exactly what defines marketable yield. And we find that most crops, to some degree, are compensated for quality. It might be indirectly, but test weight improvements, oil content, protein content, whatever it is, if we can increase those quality parameters, then that is going to result in an economic benefit to the farm.
1: I think up here in Western Canada, part of the big challenges is, how do we get paid for this and we already feel like we're sequestering carbon we already feel like we're growing healthy nutritious foods is the market incentivizing these practices that you're that you're putting forth to producers you just give one example
0: in broad general terms markets are to some degree incentivizing quality not to the degree that i hope they will in the future but that's an unfulfilled hope at this point i believe the regenerative growers will be fine even if there are not additional compensation is not additional compensation for quality because of the examples that i just provided i haven't given any grain examples but you're familiar with what the incentives are for protein content on wheat what happens if you increase the protein content on wheat by one or one and a half percentage points across the board that's a pretty significant economic incentive at least here in the u.s there are those types of quality incentives so i want to address something though you feel like you are producing a high-quality product right now and sequestering carbon. But do you actually know that? That's how we feel, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you actually know that? Is it actually being measured? Are you actually documenting it? And secondly, do we know what quality actually looks like? What is the zinc and the manganese and the boron and the cobalt content of really high-quality grain from a nutritional perspective? Do we actually know? And I would propose from a very... Fundamentally practical perspective. A plant that has a functional immune system and is capable of resisting diseases and insects is also capable of transferring that immunity to the people or to the livestock who consume it as food. And this is a function of both phytonutrients and the actual mineral nutrition and microbiome itself. It's a combination of all three of those factors, plus probably more as well. So, what do those plants that have? a disease and insect resistance look like from a nutritional perspective compared to what is the mainstream? That's I think where we need to begin. We need to define what quality actually looks like and recognize that just because we have a high yielding crop, where the crops looks nice and green and performs well and we have a high yielding crop of pick a number, 100 bushels of canola per acre or whatever it is, just because it's high yielding does not define that it's high quality from a nutritional perspective. So we need to define exactly what quality is. We have done this in the fruit and vegetable world to some degree. uh, There's some crop-specific stuff that has been done on tomatoes and black raspberries and stuff, for example, blueberries and so forth. And we know that there's tremendous variability. In blueberries, for example, the anthocyanin content can vary by a factor of 20x based on a plant's nutritional profile. It's a huge variability. So you can have two pounds of blueberries anthocyanins are valuable to us because they enhance our immune system and yet one pack of blueberries is 20 times higher than the other so which is going to have the better flavor and aroma which would you rather pay more for this brings me to my second point which is that i believe that growers deserve to be paid more for producing higher quality i think practically all growers would agree with me on that but if we believe that Then we have to examine the other side of that belief. We have to examine the other side of the coin, which is, do farmers deserve to be paid less for producing lower quality? And are we perhaps producing lower quality today, but we don't actually know it because we're not measuring? And when we look at the public health profile in our developed countries around the world, when we look at the absolute epidemic we have of degenerative illnesses, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, obesity, the list just kind of goes on and on. Autoimmune diseases, you know that teenagers, or not, not teenagers, but young folks between the ages of 1 and 18 have doubled in autoimmune diseases from 9% to 18% of the population in a 10-year period. Why would we consider that to be acceptable? When you look at cancers, we now have 40% I think that the numbers are 44% of of women and 45% of men or something right around there living today are expected to have cancer in their lifetime. Why would we consider that to be acceptable? And I am not suggesting that agriculture alone is the source of those problems. There are other contributing factors. There's food processing. There's the environment that we live in, the general pollution of our cities and so forth. It's not just agriculture. However, I believe that Agriculture is a contributor. And secondly, I believe that agriculture has a fundamental possibility of being the solution. Because even if we were to get food processing to change, if we were to get food processors to say, okay, you know what? All the empty carbs, the sugar, the salt, the processed fats, that stuff is gone. We're we're going to go in a different direction. Or perhaps from a federal mandate perspective, we would say that we're going to go in a different direction to improve the health of our population. That is only possible when you have agriculture producing medicinal quality food, and we are very far from that today. So I think that agriculture is one of several contributing factors to the public health problem. It doesn't bear the responsibility alone. And I also would suggest that we have a fundamental responsibility because we are at the foundation of the pyramid. We have the possibility of turning the situation around, perhaps even... We have the possibility of turning public health around without the support of food processors in the medical community. So that's something for us to think about. And then do we deserve to be compensated for that? Yes, absolutely. We need to be compensated for that. Do we need to measure it
1: and know exactly what we're being compensated for? Yes, we do. That is a brilliant treatise (laughs) on where we're at with food. And it's always resonated with me when you've spoken about traveling in the Midwest staying in these hotels, continental breakfast, is a lot of that actually food? Or is it some process facsimile thereof that, that your body tends to recognize as food, but it's, it's, not actually, it's not actually food?
0: The research says that the majority of stuff that we eat in our civilized society, when we consume it and it enters into our stomach, it immediately elicits a strong white blood cell response. That white blood cells rush to our digestive tract to quote unquote, remove the toxins. It basically mm-hmm. triggers an immune reaction. And so I would suggest that the pretend stuff that pretends to be food as you just described is not. And it's it's really disheartening that the Great Plains Midwest is accurately called a food desert. It is, I mean this is the American heartland where we have some of the richest soil in the world producing amazing crops. And yet our farmers and growers, for the most part, eat crap and they think it's food. If you go to the East Coast or you go to the West Coast or you go into the cities, you can have these quote-unquote fine dining experiences where you have really high quality food that is well-cooked and prepared. Why can we not have that on every farmer's table? We should have that. For us as farmers, as food producers, we pride ourselves on quote-unquote feeding the world why don't we begin at home by feeding ourselves really well? Our connection to food, I believe, and our desire for high-quality food is going to be in direct proportion or in direct relationship to how much we care about the food we provide to other people.
1: Well, it's fascinating, isn't it, that uh, I was just reading the other day that most folks in the modern civilized world are eating about a credit card's worth of plastic, like in micro form, a week. And that has wow. a big impact on your biome. <laughs> you should Google for that headline. It's extremely, I should send that article to you.
0: Microplastics, they're a really, really big deal, but I didn't realize it was that volume.
1: Wow. And it, it affects your microbiome. I'm not sure you're familiar with the, There's this company called biome.com that you can send your yep. a scoop of your poop away in your blood. Where are we at, do you think, with learning more about our biome, adjusting our diet, the parallels in the soil, you really see us going in that direction, don't you? And you guys are a part of that. Well, the fundamentals of immunity for human health, for
0: plant health, for livestock health, fundamentally rest on two pillars. Pillar of our microbiome combined with mineral nutrition. It requires those two. And this conversation we're having reminds me of the research that I got into pretty deeply. This is probably 12 or 13 years ago, maybe even earlier where I tried to deeply understand the, the mechanism and the modes of action of different pesticides. And my goodness, that was incredibly depressing. When you connect the dots and realize what this stuff actually does, we'd like to pretend that this stuff is safe for the human population at certain doses. But it's really not, even though the EPA or the FDA tried to give us platitudes and pat us on the back. Here's, here's when, when you think about... The prevalent cancers of the day, I mentioned cancer a little bit ago. When you think about the prevalent cancers of the day, how many of them are related to the human reproductive system? Breast cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, uh, prostate cancer, the, the list kind of goes on and on. I don't know what those are in, in to, as a percentage of the total, but I'm sure they're a significant fraction, perhaps even more than half. What those all have in common is that they're all connected to our endocrine system. Why does that matter? Because the vast majority of insecticides and fungicides and even the majority of herbicides are significant and powerful endocrine disruptors. And when you think about uh, endocrine disruptors, you really dig into this research. If you were to bring together the endocrine endocrinal hormones of all the ladies on the planet together into one physical location you would have a total of seven pounds if you were to do the same for all the men on the planet you would have a total of 70 pounds or 10 times more that's a total of 77 pounds of endocrine hormones active hormones for the entire global population And the quantity of endocrine-disrupting pesticides that end up in and on our food supply measures in the billions of pounds. So how can they not have a significant disrupting effect? There's a lot of science and stuff behind that that's worth digging into, but it's, I think it can be really depressing if you go down that road very far and you quickly realize that Even though we may not want to acknowledge it, the reality is that agriculture is a significant contributor to public health or the lack thereof. And, of course, it's useful to know this stuff, but we have to not allow ourselves to become depressed. And if we actually want to have a positive impact and a significant change in the world, then it's not enough to just point out the problems. We also have to identify the solutions. And as Buckminster Fuller said, We simply displace the current system by producing a replacement that is so significantly better that it automatically displaces what currently exists. And that's the task that we have before ourselves collectively.
1: How has your background, your Amish roots, affected your practices and your philosophy and your approach to business and farming and and food and health?
0: That's like asking the fish a
1: question. (laughs) How do you like your (laughs) environment of water? The fish say it's well, you have to understand, most of us are not in the fishbowl with you. And I've dealt a lot with Hutterites and Mennonites. I haven't had the pleasure of dealing with the Amish so much, but I'm fascinated by these cultures. I think they instill infrastructure and borders for which you can, you can shape your life, and I think it's an important thing. Most of us out in the free world, so to speak, we don't have those bumper rails. Like we don't have that that guidance. And you talked about in your company. Uh, a lot of you folks have that that spiritual connection. That's also that's also guiding. I'm personally interested in that. If you would, if you'd share,
0: yeah. There's another big topic that could be opened up from that question, and I'm not sure quite what direction to take it. But I think that the kind of the fundamental is an ethos of stewardship, an ethos of caring, and I find it really interesting. And by the way, I include the Amish, Mennonites, and Hutterites in this various communities from a collective Anabaptist heritage or background. It's interesting that across agriculture as a whole, across much of North America, the majority of our farmers generally profess to be Christians. And I'm speaking here in very broad brushstrokes. I know there's many individuals. But generally speaking, the majority of farmers profess to be Christians. And these, as an agrarian culture community... We would also generally agree that as Christians, we are to be stewards of God's creation. And then we turn around and behave in a way that is the direct antithesis of stewardship. And we've developed, or we've adapted an agricultural model that has historically really degraded our soil health and uh, our public health and so forth, and is that really true stewardship? And I've tried to really understand, again, my my approach to trying to understand challenges is to seek to identify the root cause. What's the root cause? And so I was thinking about this quite a bit, and what is the root cause of why have we gone in this direction collectively as a culture? At any rate, the answers that have emerged for me from a a theological perspective are that as Christians, we generally, we have three different beliefs. Two of them, which I've very clearly demonstrated to be false and many other people have as well that have allowed us to adopt this very damaging model of agriculture the first is the belief that we are here to have dominion over and uh, if you dig into that directive to have dominion over in in the bible in genesis then first of all dominion meant something very different 300 years ago from what it does today it meant To be a steward. If you were a lord or a king or a noble, you were to steward the people underneath you. And today, we understand the word dominion to mean to dominate and to subjugate. And if you go back into the original Hebrew, the word actually meant to keep and to care for, in other words, to steward. The second belief is the belief that the earth is cursed. And while I agree that the earth is generally collectively in a fallen state, I do not believe that the earth is cursed. There is this belief that we will always have thorns and thistles and brambles, and we will always have diseases and insects. And yet, I would offer, what's the quote? I think it's maybe Genesis 8.21, but you might want to verify that. When Noah emerged from the ark and he offered up a burnt offering, God smelled this and he said, I will never again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the thoughts and imaginations of a man's heart are evil from the the days of his youth. We completely bypassed the first part of that sentence, I will never again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. So if our soil is cursed, if it is producing thorns and thistles and brambles and diseases and insect pests, that's a result of our management or our mismanagement of that soil, not a result of a curse. And the third belief is the belief that it's all going to burn up eventually anyway. So when you combine those three, that A, we are here to have dominion over, B, the earth is cursed, C, it's all going to burn up eventually anyway, that kind of gives Christians and Christian farmers implicit permission to adopt a model of agriculture that is very damaging to the resources that they are supposed to steward. And I'm realizing as I'm going on this monologue that uh, this isn't even an answer to the question that you asked, but... (laughs) No, it's perfect. I love it. I think it's important for us to recognize that we have received this indoctrination that in some ways is fundamentally incorrect that has led us to where we are today and that we need to take a different approach and a different mindset. We need to renew our minds and we need to renew our hearts about what it really means to be stewards.
1: Oh, that is great, John. I I really appreciate that perspective. And And what's exciting is that you're doing this with a whole bunch of people. And people are responding to this and, and going in this direction. Because I think it's, it's a very hopeful approach. You're, you're not excluding profitability at the expense of, of these philosophies. But I think, I think there's a massive feel good.
0: You exclude profitability, you will never get it adopted.
1: <laughs> yeah, you'll never get there. You'll never get there. But I think there is something really great about having healthy soils, a healthy environment, and our own health. As well, I believe that farmers should be the healthiest folks out there, being close as they are with the soil and producing their own food. And like you said, many folks in your camp tend to have small farms or, or be involved with agriculture somehow personally or have gardens. So you're, you're, you're doing some fast, fantastic stuff. What do you see happening with a lot of your clients as they get on this journey? What's the net result? The net result is that we want to work ourselves out of a job on the farms that we work on as quickly as possible.
0: So I see the various tools that we have in the toolbox in terms of product inputs whether those be microbial inoculants seed treatments whether they be foliar applications whether they be infra applications whatever they may be the objective is to regenerate soil health and plant health to a much higher plateau of performance and get to the point where we do not need these continued inputs and For some soils in some contexts, I mean, if you're growing potatoes on the central sands of Michigan, that's probably never going to happen because it's just the, the soil has no nutrient reserve and no nutrient bank. So that objective is certainly context dependent. But we now have, after doing this for 15 years, I don't have exact track or count of how many farms we've done this, but we have quite a number of farms, the early farms that we worked on that we've worked ourselves out of a job where their overall ecosystem is performing so well. they have functional disease and insect resistance they don't have significant challenges anymore from a pest perspective they have high yielding crops and they require minimal to no nutrient input and that's i think where we really need to be if we want to have a legitimate conversation about sustainability true sustainability then we first need to have a discussion about what it means to regenerate soil health and plant health to a point where
1: they can sustain themselves without continual outside inputs John, I've never heard of an agronomist trying to work themselves out of a a job. So that's about as a shocking, counterintuitive statement I've ever heard. But but it makes sense, right? And even though you're very relationship based, you're you're really trying to to right the ship and help them get out on their own and 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 have that system functioning really well where it doesn't need a lot of manipulation.
0: Many of the deepest and closest relationships I have are with those exact farmers who uh, no longer have a need of being AEA customers. And uh, yeah, we, I have relationships that go back well over a decade that I still talk to people on a regular basis that they don't, they don't need AEA products anymore. And uh, yet we still have a very close relationship. And that's, I think the, the most important piece in our life for all of us as people, is the depth and quality of our relationships. And I've several times I've, I've found myself talking about the Harvard study, and I need to find out what the correct name is to call this. But there's this study that's been ongoing since 1938, originally started as a longevity study to trying to identify what were the factors that contributed to longevity. And the conclusion is this: this project, this research project, is still ongoing to this day. Has been run by successive groups of professors and grad students and the conclusion of all of this research is that the quality of your life and the length of your life, there is only one, when I say the quality of your life that relates to your financial success, your your sense of personal fulfillment and satisfaction, your happiness. All of these parameters tie back to only one variable, the depth and quality of your personal relationships, particularly with your spouse and family, but also with your circle of friends. It is those people who value and prioritize their relationships, who are the most financially successful, who are the most fulfilled, who are the happiest and who live the longest lives. And uh, I believe we need to take that approach, not just with our immediate family but also with our friends and our business colleagues. And so the, the people who started out being customers of Advancing eco agriculture became friends. And we actively want them to become friends. We want to develop these deep relationships. And so I really think, look, if we want to have a conversation about regenerating agriculture, it's not about regenerating soils and plant health. Or not just about that. That's only one piece of a very multifaceted perspective. We also need to regenerate farm profitability and economic viability. We need to regenerate our rural communities, and we need to regenerate our relationships and our relationships between each other. So mainstream agribusiness, as it's called, has a very transactional approach. It's it's very transactional, dollars and cents. And we believe that if we want to truly embody a regenerative ethos, then. We have to base our interactions on people based on relationships, not transactions.
1: Should have been a preacher, John. (laughs) (laughs) Well, very eloquent. Both of my fathers and my dad were (laughs) preachers. Oh, wow. So you come by it honestly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're really a leader. You're really preaching in a different context. But you talked about how folks that are, are coming into your company, you have an extensive... Interview process and they get a glimpse of your culture and they're very excited about it. But when they actually get into the company, it's ten x of what they thought. It's much better than they, they thought.
0: That really was that was the highlight of my year this last year. I'm going to remember it for a long time. We brought three new people on. Well, we brought a number of new people on at the beginning of the year, and it was late May, early June. Within a couple week time period, I got three phone calls from three of the new hires that had all come on in the prior months, and they all said something very similar, which was that. We went through this extensive inter- interview process. We caught this glimpse of this amazing team culture, and we really wanted to be a part of your team. Only to discover, once we came on board, that it was way better than we ever imagined. That made my ear for me.
1: Really <laughs> what but is the secret of- sauce there? Most companies would kill for that kind of feedback from employees. How do you, you, know, how do you cultivate that? We've got one negative review
0: on Glassdoor. And the negative review <laughs> Something along the lines of, it's such an amazing team and so valuable work to work with that you can put in 60 hours a week before you even know what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, the the critique, the criticism is that you easily work too much. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So there's a very multifaceted answer to your simple question, and it's actually not. It's something that I've thought a lot about, but not recently. And I think fundamentally, you have to bring on people who deeply, viscerally share your values. Whatever the values of your team and organization might be, you need to bring people on board who have those values as their own before they come on board. And, not, and they not, don't just adopt them just because they happen to be yours. And I think in this context, diversity is overrated in today's world and what i mean by that is there's often this this advocacy that we we need to have a diversity of perspectives diversity of perspectives a diversity of opinions a diversity of viewpoints and uh, there is value in that i'm i'm not discounting that but when it comes to working together as a team in addition to diversity you also need to have deep alignment you have need to have deep alignment on things on a core group of things that you all agree on and I think that's been lost in some organizations today with uh, an, such an emphasis on diversity that we've, we've lost our perspective on the need for alignment.
1: Interesting statement. You could argue the same in the, in the pursuit of fending off uh, the impending doom of, of climate change. There's been a lot of things that have been sacrificed at at the cost of that, right? So I, I appreciate your perspective on that. And we could delve into lots more stuff, John. Your 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 speech is very inspirational. Your approach is very hopeful and I appreciate everything that you're that you're doing in the industry. What would you say to somebody who's on the other side of the fence from where you're at, looking over, wanting to get involved, wanting to take those steps? What would you say to somebody who's just looking at going in this direction with their their operation?
0: be willing to challenge everyone else and be willing to challenge yourself. So I would say if if you want to dig deeper, there's a few thoughts. Um, One is look at uh, my work and the work, the stuff that I've done online. If you want to dig deeper following this conversation, probably the best place to go is my personal website at johnkemph.com. That's kind of the central repository for all the stuff that I do, the podcast, the webinars. I've got a blog there that I would invite all of you to subscribe to. And Then when it comes to your operation, and and not just, uh, there's, I have that as kind of my central platform, but there's a lot of other really amazing consultants out there in the world today that weren't out there a decade ago or even five years ago. And then when it comes to your operation, experiment at a size of scale where it's safe to fail. So, if you're farming 5,000 acres and it's safe to fail on 50 acres, actually go out there and try something on 50 acres. And the the two rules that I think are kind of the rules to live by in in implementing or testing any new approach or new idea is don't guess when you can measure and use analysis to find out exactly what's happening, what's going on. I'll, I'll expand on that point just a bit. We have... Transitioned millions of acres to dramatically reduce nitrogen inputs over the course of the last decade. And our approach is pretty simple. We know definitively we have proof that applying nitrogen at planting is one of the best mechanisms there is for creating a fertilizer junkie for the rest of that plant's life. So we put on no nitrogen at planting if at all possible, if we're able to persuade growers to take that step. And then we measure every 7 to 14 days, depending on the crop, exactly what the crop's nitrogen requirements are and how well it is absorbing nitrogen from the soil. And you wouldn't believe if we talk about corn crops as an example, the majority of the time, I would say in the upper 90th percentile of time, The crop shows a surplus of nitrogen all the way through until the tasseling stage or a bit after, until we get to grain fill, with zero applied nitrogen. And over and over again, farmers are just amazed. How, How is it possible that my crop has excessive levels of nitrogen? And the plants are showing it. We've got dark green leaves all the way to the ground. So the lab data and the plants are showing us that the plant has generous levels of nitrogen. Now, the plants are not going to be quite as dark green as Growers are familiar with because they're used to observing plants that have surplus nitrogen. But what happens is that we then put on a nitrogen application based on exactly what the crop's requirements are, as revealed by laboratory testing, once we get to the grain fill period. And very commonly, we're putting on 30 to 40% of the historical nitrogen applications, and we're getting increased crop yields. And that just blows farmers' minds. It happens over and over and over again. And it's because we don't put fertilizer on based on what we guess the plants might need. We measure what the plants actually need. And that approach, well, particularly in the world that we live in today with nitrogen prices, that approach saves (laughs) gonna say over a
1: thousand bucks.
0: Tremendous (laughs) amounts of money. It's really interesting. I know I'm getting off on a tangent here a little bit, but I'm going to bring it out. It's important. Mainstream agronomy has historically been based on the law of the minimum. We've all seen the photo or the diagram of the barrel with the broken-off staves. The idea being that it is the nutrient which is in least supply which is going to reduce or limit crop yields. The funny part is I've never yet seen a a barrel with water or carbon dioxide as one of the staves, and yet those are the two greatest (laughs) limiting factors. At any rate, there's a counterpoint to the law of the minimum, which is consistently ignored, and the counterpoint is called the law of the maximum. The law of the maximum states that it is the nutrient in excess supply which creates deficiencies of something else that is going to be the yield limiting factor. And uh, I share this story in a number, several. I share several stories in some of our webinars and podcasts. I want to be considerate of time and not go too much over here, but we often produce some of our greatest quality responses and our greatest yield responses by stopping fertilizer applications that are being put on at the wrong time. It's not always about putting on more stuff. It's not always about putting on more molybdenum or more boron or more cobalt or whatever. Sometimes it's about reducing nitrogen that's being applied at the wrong time, reducing phosphorus at the wrong time, reducing potassium at the wrong time. Those are the big three. And then to get back to my concluding advice for farmers, I mentioned failing at a safe scale or experimenting at a safe scale. And that would be you actually need to measure what the results are. And this is something that I far too commonly see growers fall short on, they want to see a visual crop response. So if it's not visually greener or visually higher yielding, then it was not effective. Well, what if we gauged our... Here's the interesting... I'll I'll put out one more thought and then I'm going to shut up. And that is, (laughs) what if we scrutinized... Our current practices, the stuff that we're doing right now today as standard practice, what if we scrutinize that with the same level of scrutiny as we do the new practices that come on board? I've challenged many growers to try this. I've challenged them to try their 624.6 or whatever it is, their infuro starter, and test that in application's effectiveness against doing nothing or against doing something different and it's surprising and astonishing how frequently the current established practice does not hold up but we keep doing it because that's the recommendation and that's what everyone does the only problem is it actually doesn't work a great deal of the time
1: Fascinating perspective that probably 80% of what we're doing is we're doing it just because we've, we've always done it and we just don't even remember enough to question it at this, at this point, it's baked in. Fantastic perspective. Let's wrap it up with what, what do you see in the future? What is your, what is your optimum vision that you talked about 10 or 20 years from now? Where do you see the industry? Where do you see food? Where do you see agriculture going? Where do you want it to go?
0: There's no way I can answer that in a short clip. (laughs) (laughs) Take your time, then. I want to hear it. My personal mission is to have regenerative agriculture and these models of agriculture become the status quo globally by 2040, where we have 80 plus percent adoption around the entire globe. I think that's a very realistic and very achievable goal. We are well on the pathway to achieving that already, and I'm very optimistic that we're going to be there. I would suggest if people want to dig deeper into my thoughts on that. I was asked to do a presentation a couple of years ago at the Soil and Nutrition Conference that was titled Agriculture 2050, and that's available on YouTube if people want to dig into that deeper. And certainly my thoughts have evolved over time, and they're probably different now from what they were four years ago when I did that, but it's still a
1: useful starting point. Good. Well, we can put that link in the show notes. Thanks for coming on, John. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I enjoy your show. I really admire your company. It'd be great to see you banging around the gravel roads of Canada here. And it'd be great to see you guys doing some work up here too. You you guys are in Western Canada to some degree, you said?
0: Yeah, we are doing some work up there. And I've been up there a couple of times, but uh, not all that recently. The last couple of years with all the craziness that's been going on in the world. But yeah, I'd love to be back (laughs) up there at
1: some point. Well, hey, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm sure people are going to get a lot of this. And keep up the good work that you're doing. I'm really proud. Such an eloquent and caring guy is at the helm of... What I think is the future. I totally believe that. I totally believe in a healthier future as we understand more about what goes on in our soils, what goes on in our bodies. I think it's a consideration that we forgot. To your point, we should be testing what, be, what we've been eating and the effects on our body and our immune system and our health. It's the number one killer in America. And we're doing it by putting it in our mouths, right? I mean, all this collectively, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, all that stuff. That's the number one uh, killer. So the remedy, regenerative agriculture and positive personal relationships.
0: All of us already know bits and pieces that are required to shift this and bring about a different transition. This is One of the things that I've really come to realize is that every one of us, every one of us as growers, we have all had experiences, we've made observations, we know something that other people can benefit from. and. Uh, My request to all of you as our listeners is to ask yourself the question, what do I know or what have I observed that could help other growers uh, manage their operations more effectively or help to facilitate a transition? And then share that. Share that publicly on social media or wherever. Reach out to me. I think everyone knows something that can benefit all of us collectively, and we would do well to not lose sight
1: of that. Thank you, John. What was that website that you mentioned was a good way to get a hold of you or learn more about what you're working on?
0: It's very simple. It's my name, johnkemph.com.
1: Love it. Thank you, John. Thanks, Dan. Keep growing, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. We really appreciate that you would spend some of your valuable time with us. We would like to give a shout out to Stephen and Veronica and the whole team at Pod Sound School for their talent and hard work in editing and producing these episodes. Be sure to check them out at www.podsoundschool.com. Also, Nicole Duby from Aberhart Ag Solutions. Thank you so much. Nicole's really passionate about making these episodes come to life and sharing them with you. Please, let's stay in touch. You can communicate with us on any of the social media platforms. You can also check us out on YouTube. And sign up for our newsletter growingthefuturepodcast.ca so you don't miss an episode. Do not forget to check out the Aberhart family of companies online too. aberhartfarms.com. SureGrowth.ca, ConvergenceGrowth.com, and AberheardEggSolutions.ca. Links are in the episode notes. We would love to hear from you. Reach out and tell us what you like about the show or what we could do to improve upon this. And we will send you some free Schweig. Until next episode, folks, let's keep it real. Growing the future together.